G'day everyone, welcome to Lubrication Experts and today we've got a pretty fundamental topic. We're going to be talking sort of base stocks um, and there is probably no better person to do it with uh, than Mr. Jack Zakarian. So uh, Jack was with Chevron for 37 years, has been retired for a little while now but is an STLE fellow so he certainly got the, uh, the industry chops um, to be able to take us through this subject. Um, and uh, so I really appreciate Jack coming on. Um, he obviously does uh, some consulting work. So if anyone is interested, um, obviously reach out after this. But uh, Jack, uh, thanks so much for joining us. Well, thanks for the invite. All right. Um, so maybe if we get started with uh, kind of like the very basics of, um, of lubricant base stocks. I think um, a lot of people in our industry at least and, and people who listen to this podcast would understand the API base oil groups. So you've got group one, two, three, four, and five. That's almost like you might describe it as being the sort of the consumer facing um, side. Um, but then in the base oil market, it can kind of start to confuse people because they start seeing these terms like neutral, solvent neutral, bright stock um, ver versus them being talked about as group one, two and three. So are you able to help us kind of define these terms and and maybe kind of help people link where the API based stock groups are to, you know, the, the base stock market? Sure. I mean, the, basically the API uh, system is just a way to classify different base oils. So all the other terms for base oils uh, have their own meetings and meanings in their uh, covered under, you know, different groups in the API. But I guess it's kind of like uh, saying if you had a bunch of automobiles, uh, you could put them into categories of, uh, you know, two doors, four doors, and uh, and pickup trucks. But, uh, you know, that's a classification. That's what API is. But then you still have all the different models, uh, the vehicle makers and things out there. And so that would be another way to describe you know, what's there. And, and then when you say it's like describing the car models, uh, let's say car models within a, a category. So if we looked at the group ones, for example, when they distinguish uh, based on the end product, uh, you know, solvent neutral versus bright stock, is that a classification that's based on the technology that's used to produce them? Or is that a classification based on the end product? So the, the form performance specs. How, so how does that divide out? Yeah, actually, bright stock is a term that, has its own special meaning and essentially it refers to what we would call the bottom of the barrel. Uh, so whenever petroleum is refined to make a base oil, uh, you have the very heaviest or the highest boiling components that uh, are found essentially as the bottoms part of the vacuum distillation tower and that feed goes into making bright stock. So bright stock would have a higher molecular weight and higher viscosity than what we would call neutral oils. But essentially neutral oils would be what gets distilled overhead and bright stocks are what comes out the bottom of the column. And you can have bright stocks that are made with a group one process or a group two or even a group three process. And similarly, you can have neutral oils that are made with all the different processes, but it really refers to a split between the boiling points and the viscosities of, of those oils. 
Ah, uh, that's that's interesting. So so why is it? And I can't speak for everyone, but when we hear about Brightstock, it always seems to be in a Group One context. Um, I mean, I heard you mention Group Two and Group Three Brightstocks, but I don't think I've ever come across them in the market. Why is that? Yeah, it's uh, several reasons for that. In fact, in the er, my early years at Chevron, uh, I was uh, very much involved in. Uh, the research and design of their lubricating oil plant at Richmond, uh, California. And the initial plan for that uh, base oil manufacturing site was to make Brightstock. And we would have been uh, one of the first manufacturers to make a Brightstock from a Group 2 process. But uh, during the course of our research, we found that Essentially, to make a bright stock that was stable and suitable for sale by the process that we had, which was all hydro processing, uh, we needed more steps. And at the final minute before uh, appropriations were done, we basically decided to remove bright stock uh, from the slate of oils we made because it would be way too expensive. Uh, to manufacture it with the additional equipment needed. And because an all hydro processing route, which is what we had in the Richmond complex, uh, that route uh, is, it needs some help if it's going to make a bright stock, especially from uh, some crude oils, which we were using, which are not very uh, beneficial for making lubes. So. So it's pretty easy to make Brightstock on what we'd call a solvent refining plant because the uh, Brightstock, when it's solvent extracted, you can take a lot of the extra impurities out of it. But even before you do that, Brightstock needs its own separate step, which is called solvent deasphalting. And so this is where you take the bottoms that comes out of a vacuum distillation column, it's basically tar, asphalt, and some oil. And you extract that, um, and then the extracted material becomes essentially asphalt. And, well, the, the extract is, contains the, uh, I'm trying to think now of raffid. It, they use different terms in extraction, but the raffinate would be the bright stock and the extract is then asphalt. And uh, so that step, Richmond had a step to do that, but the amount of refining that that step was designed to do was not sufficient to make lubricating quality uh, what we would call de-asphalted oil. So that oil would then not be of a high enough quality to go to a hydrocracker. It would essentially uh, poison the catalyst and, and kill it very quickly. So, so with group one processes, if you've got a good solvent deasphalting plant and you can make a reasonable bright stock, then that goes to the solvent extraction step, which is the main part of group one. And then you can make bright stock. The other thing, uh, that you really need for Brightstock is it's much easier to solvent de-wax Brightstock instead of catalytically de-waxing it uh, because the wax molecules are so much larger in Brightstock. And so uh, 
many hydrocracking plants these days do not have any solvent de-waxing. They all do catalytic de-waxing. Uh, yeah, so kind of a long explanation, but uh, the bottom line is, uh, I don't know, well, there have been a few new Brightstock operations built in the last 30 or 40 years, but essentially uh, it would be highly unusual for anybody now to go and build a Group 1 Brightstock facility. The ones making it are essentially ones that have been around for many years. Yeah, that's that's really interesting. I think a part of that discussion is that as an end user, the products just kind of come to you. You never really think about the long tail of investment decisions that might need to be made in a technology based on what feedstock is available to you, what technologies are available to you, and therefore what kind of end product you can produce. And that's all a very complex design process that needs to be gone through by these base stock suppliers. So getting a window into that is is really fascinating. Maybe for, before we get onto that question, because you did raise the idea of the fact that bright stocks are, um, let's say, declining or in decline. Before we get onto that, can we just step back a little bit before we get too far into the weeds? And historically, maybe assess uh, what have the base or mixes traditionally look like? Because, you know, I know in our world, we tend to focus a lot on group one, two, and three, but obviously there's an entire world, for example, of naphthenic base oils, which have a lot of application in transformer oils and greases. And and are we, we able to maybe step back and explain, you know, why does the base stock market look the way it does today? You know, we've got group one plants that are aging, group two and three plants, which uh, continue to open at re pretty regular intervals, and they're producing a pretty broad variety of different base stocks. Um, and then you've also got the synthetics, right, um, which are sort of their own category. So where you work, for example, you know, Chevron produces base stocks, but Chevron Phillips Chemicals does all the synthetics, and I think there's a similar split in ExxonMobil. So why does that all look the way it does? Well, actually, I would think uh, I'll... With, with a little bit of bias here, I'll say that uh, Chevron can take a lot of the credit for essentially transforming the industry to Group 2. Uh, when we first built that Richmond plant, uh, there were very few plants making Group 2s. And at the time, there was essentially just one licensor of the technology that was Gulf Oil. Uh, Chevron, right essentially when the Richmond plant opened, uh, took over Gulf Oil. So we had all their hydrocracking and lube technology, plus Chevron went into licensing their own technology. But in those early years, I can remember uh, we were the only ones in North America that were making Group 2, and a lot of people were very nervous about using it. Uh, the biggest thing that people worried about other than it being just a brand new stock, was that it was a lot more saturated with much fewer aromatics than Group 1 oils. And many additives were designed to be more soluble in Group 1. And the more paraffinic an oil gets, uh, the tougher time you have dissolving additive packages. And also there are some applications where solvency of the oil in its end use is a desired quality, and Group 2s didn't necessarily uh, make the cut there. But uh, the reason why the market changed is probably more due to economics 
and also specification changes in the automotive world that uh, really uh, became a huge driver for group two type technology. In fact, the specifications are changing so much that now most automotive engine oils really need a group three quality type oil or group four PAO just to meet the actual uh, automaker specifications. So group one now, uh, if you want to use it in a transportation lubricant, uh, it's a pretty limited market. Most modern vehicles just plain cannot use the oil at all, uh, either because it's got too much sulfur, too much nitrogen, or too many aromatics, uh, and it won't meet specs. Uh, so, and the transportation lube market is about 50% of the total product demand. So if you have a market, 50% of which is I need group two or better quality, uh, that's a big reason why group one is shutting down. Uh, the other reason is group two is a lot more feed flexible. So you can take a lot of different crude oils and every crude has its own starting composition, which can either be very beneficial for making lubricants or completely undoable for making lubricants. And hydrocracking or group two processes can handle a much wider range of feed properties from crude oil. And so a group one plant, and, and I guess the way I like to think of it is Group one is what I'd call a subtraction process, that you come in with a certain amount of material and whatever's bad, you remove it. But there's no chemical transformation. So group one may remove a lot of aromatics. It removes some sulfur. Uh, you remove the wax. But uh, you're in, you end up with a product that's essentially only as good as your starting crude oil. Uh, group two is totally different, same with three and four, where these are chemical synthesis processes. You're taking an oil from crude and you're reacting it with hydrogen at high temperatures, high pressures. You're putting it through a bunch of different chemical steps, catalytic dewaxing, what we call then hydro finishing after that. All of these things are changing the chemistry and that gives you a lot more control over your end product. Uh, the final thing is group one is uh, very pollution intensive, that you're dealing with a lot of solvents and it's um, very hard to contain the solvent totally within the plant. And so you have high emissions from both the solvent extraction step and solvent dewaxing. And so uh, when you look at it and you look at the cost, it actually is less expensive to build a group two plant. Uh, probably the biggest downside of group two is it needs a lot of supporting equipment. Uh, in particular, you need a source of hydrogen. So if your refinery uh, has good hydrogen manufacturing capability, then uh, you're, you're pretty much for, for group two. But uh, yeah, so for all those reasons, uh, flexibility, specifications, cost, less pollution. Uh, that's the reason why essentially group two has, has dominated. Uh, I don't think you'll ever see another group one plant actually get built from the ground up. Uh, everybody announcing plants now 
are doing group twos and threes. In fact, uh, I didn't mention one other thing that's uh, very uh, indicative now that I looked over the 2023 base oil uh, global capacities for different types of oils. And uh, this year, uh, Group 2 has surpassed Group 1 in terms of global capacity. Uh, only as far back as maybe 2017, Group 1 still had a slight edge but now uh, it, there's a, a pretty big gap and group two is now the predominant uh, base oil in the market. If you head over to the website lubrication.expert, I'm building a platform to make the job of a lubrication expert that much easier. There's a range of application-based training modules as well as certificate preparation, including ICML's MLA1, MLT1, VIM and VPR. MLA2 and MLA3 are coming later this year, as well as hopefully CLS. There are tools for lubricant and viscosity selection, and I'm starting to run bi-weekly Zoom meetings where we can all just catch up and share our experiences as lubricant professionals. Best of all, while a range of certification courses are in the order of a thousand US dollars each, all of this is available for a hundred US dollars a month. Yeah, interesting. And that's and that's certainly what I think we see as end users very much that shift from those group one formulations up to group two. Um, when you talked a little bit about um, the way that a plant is constructed and the different types of technologies that are available, does that mean that there's very little flexibility in being able to adjust the kind of products that come out, uh, you know, at the, at the back end? So, you know, is the, is the quality, well, let's say the, the, the quality or the specifications of the product that are produced, is that pretty much baked in at the design, at the design stage for a plant? Well, uh, two ways to answer that. One, there's definitely some flexibility on any design. You have to have, um, you know, the ability to adjust to maybe a, a slight change in feedstock or some customer demands for different volumes uh, of your products. Uh, so there is that, but um, I'd say that group one plants are pretty hardwired. Uh, it would be hard to do something different in a group one plant without putting significant capital in. In group two, you can certainly do different things. I mean, I remember at Chevron, we ended up making group three from the same plant that we were using to make group two. And um, the major thing that was involved on that was we just had to get a higher quality feedstock. We needed a crude that had a higher wax content because we were isomerizing a lot of the paraffins into isoparaffins and that was the basis for the high VIs on the group three. Uh, so you, you have the flexibility, but oftentimes, uh, even with a group two or a three plant, you may need to put a fair amount of capital in even to make what a customer might think of is, is a minor change because just, just changing a distillation column as an example, mm. uh, you know, can be, you know, tens of millions of dollars depending on your throughput. And, uh, so, so y you do have flexibility and, uh, it's just, um, within probably, a uh, a smaller window. Yeah, that's, uh, that's interesting. And, and then when we talk about the products that are produced, to what extent 
should we think of them as being kind of commodities? And by that, what I mean is, again, from the from the end user side, because we understand base stocks in terms of API base groups, right? So you think of all group ones as basically being the same. All group twos are basically the same. All group threes are basically the same. But but if I have, you know, two different group two plants, how different can their output be? Yeah, the... By and large, the oils are commodities, and part of that is due to the API system, uh, as you just mentioned, that, uh, you know, a customer is going to say, well, gee, this other guy is selling Group 1 at this price. Why is your Group 1 uh, different? Um, and so the... Um, but with Group 1s, they actually... Uh, because the plant is hardwired, like I said, where you have a certain feed coming in, you're just subtracting what's in that feed. So you're left with the same chemicals day in and day out. You don't have a lot of handles to change that. So with group one, you'll find that uh, stocks from different manufacturers can behave uh, fairly differently in your blends. And that's especially true for bright stock. Brightstock, uh, because it's the highest viscosity piece, it has the most molecular variation. It's the most difficult to work with. Uh, in my formulating days at Chevron, you know, there were some Brightstocks, oh, we, we loved working with those. And then there were others that we would say, tell purchasing, don't ever buy this Brightstock again. Uh, and uh, you would do that less often for, for the solvent neutral oils. But... Um, with group two, and this is another big advantage, uh, group two is more of a homogenizer when it comes to making the, the base oil. Uh, because you're doing extensive hydrocracking, hydrogenation, uh, catalytic de-waxing, uh, the products are more similar than dissimilar, especially if you compare them to group ones. And uh, with group threes, it's even more refining and the products can be more similar. The, the big difference in group threes now is uh, there are some significantly different processes for how the stocks are made. Uh, probably the biggest difference would be the gas to liquids process, which Shell uses, uh, where you're starting essentially from natural gas and building a lubricant up from that. Uh, that's a lot different than starting with petroleum. And... Uh, the other thing that's different is a lot of the Group 3 manufacturers have kind of made a split between what they call regular Group 3 and Group 3 Plus, where the plus means it's been refined more and it has a higher VI. And so once you start getting over about 130, 135 VI, uh, then those Group 3s tend to be different compared to the typical Group 3. But, but again, by and large, uh, group threes are very similar because they're essentially 99% saturated hydrocarbons. Uh, in fact, I'll say 100% because they're really, uh, there's almost no aromatics. Uh, there are cycloparaffins, but they're largely isoparaffins. Mm. Yeah, that, that's really interesting. So, so given that kind of landscape of, of the base stock market where we have, I'd say, a pretty robust um, supply, especially of group two and group three, what's the significance of group one disappearing 
from the market. So I think we've seen, you know, a lot of news articles and things being published about, um, particularly the European Group One refineries, kind of starting to to shut down. And there's obviously, like you mentioned, very little new investment in in that style refinery. Now, my understanding, this is a very basic level, has always been that. Uh, group ones tend to be available in higher viscosities than the group two and group three counterparts. And so while you might not see many changes in the automotive formulations, because they've already moved to group two and three formulations, that there might be a bit of change in industrial, you know, as an example, industrial gear oils or uh, maybe like the, you know, higher viscosity hydraulics market or something like that. But how do you see it? Oh, yeah. I mean, I I think... When people say that group one tends to be higher viscosity, uh, it's pretty much only higher viscosity because of Brightstock. So if you include Brightstock uh, in the group one slate, then you see, I think there's maybe two plants in the world today that make a Brightstock that's a group two. And there's maybe one or two more plants that make a Brightstock that is essentially from a naphthenic crude. Mm -hmm. So... Um, you, you can't make the very heaviest oils, uh, essentially anything more than an ISO 320 or, or maybe a 460, depending on how it's blended. Uh, once you go above those, you need a lot of bright stock. Now, uh, people have been moaning for years that, uh, you know, bright stock is disappearing and we're going to lose the high viscosity uh, stock to blend with. But uh, kind of what's happened, at least from my viewpoint, is that the demand for bright stock has dropped considerably because of the automotive specifications. So even though bright stock supply has gone down, the demand for the product has gone down quite a bit. Uh, the big issue is if you didn't have any bright stock at all, then you would have to formulate some of the products like industrial gear oils, certain greases. You would then have to find a synthetic counterpart. Uh, the most popular one would be polybutene because it's the least expensive of most synthetics and it's uh, well, well known uh, for lubricant formulas. So. You could replace Brightstock, it may cost you a little more, but as the supply of Brightstock has gone down, the price of it has gone up. And so Brightstock is a lot more expensive than all of the other neutral oils out there. And that is making it a little easier for people to consider a synthetic uh, heavy stock. You might still use the neutral oils and lighter stocks that are petroleum derived, but you may need uh, a synthetic substitute to get extra viscosity. Yeah, that's interesting. And and that's certainly a shift I think that we've already started to see. Um, so then, you know, as, as we kind of wrap up these, these discussions, I always like to ask a question about the future. And what do you see as being the future of the base stock market? So, you know, there's some overall trends that we're seeing so an example would be, you know, the decline of, of Group 1 and bright stocks, and we've got this situation where Group 2 and 3 kind of dominates and you've obviously got the polyalpha olefins kind of sitting out there as their, as their own thing. Do you see the future just being an extension of the status quo or is there some 
you know, big change that you see looming over the base stock market? Yeah, I wouldn't say there's any big changes unless you would call the removal of Group 1 a big change. I mean, I think ultimately over time, Group 1 plants will continue to shut down and you pretty much won't see Group 1 uh, on the market. Uh, you'll always see some naphthenic oil out there. It's It's got its own niche applications and there are enough naphthenic crude still left that, uh, you know, right now is probably 10% of the global base oil supply. And it's pretty much been that way forever. And, you know, you may see a slight drop off, but again, um, you know, you're not going to see naphthenic disappear. Um, ultimately, you know, what's happened, and I mentioned this earlier, group two is now the new group one. Uh, group two will be the workhorse stock and what's going to happen as more group one shuts down is group two will take over those applications that uh, are not as demanding maybe as uh, the latest automotive, you know, uh, new car uh, specification would demand. And so it, it'll do a lot of the industrial and, um, you know, other oils out there. And you'll see still an increase on basically group threes and PAOs only because of the quality demands. Now, the the huge unknown, um, which has a lot of people worried and a lot of people trying to make predictions is the um, uh, how fast electric vehicles will essentially overtake internal combustion uh, in market share. And, you know, I, uh, I think there's no question that electric vehicles will continue to increase. Uh, they don't use engine oils, and so that cuts a lot of uh, lubricant demand. As I mentioned earlier, 50% of all oil sold is essentially motor oil. But EVs still need some lubricants, and more importantly, they need coolants. And you still will see a fair amount of liquid uh, petroleum type going into those applications, especially on the gear case, every electric vehicle still needs a gearbox. Uh, and for most of those applications, because they're essentially filled for life, uh, you'll probably see group three or PAO as the de facto standard uh, for those applications. So I think over time, you're going to see the amount of base oil being made decrease and group one disappear. So that decrease may just be handled by group one disappearing. And uh, you'll see more of a shift to some higher quality uh, stocks, but that, you know, but, but that'll be it. it. It'll be, it'll be more gradual than sudden. Yeah, that's, uh, that's really interesting. And obviously there's a lot of discussion going on um, about electric vehicles and 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 even like how does that how does that affect the commercial vehicle space i think is somewhat unknown at this stage you've got multiple factors with you know regulation also stepping in particularly in the eu and and, and california so you know it, it's kind of this watch this space right um uh, well yeah i mean the thing when you talk about regulation don't get me started on this yeah. but you already did uh the thing that i always hate um uh, is when there's two things about regulation. 
Uh, regulation certainly needed. I'm not anti-regulation, but what I really despise is when regulators come in with a technology solution where they say, you have to do it this way, a regulator could say, we have these technical criteria for performance and give us something that does that. Uh, the, you know, and so the, the big issue with electric cars is that people look at emissions and obviously an electric vehicle has no emission, but an electric vehicle that's powered by electricity made from fossil fuel, especially if it's a hybrid vehicle, uh, it essentially has the same or even a better carbon footprint compared to a, just a full battery electric vehicle. And so if you only look at the tailpipe, you're missing the big picture. And, you know, in my view, I really think that what we call e-fuel, which are gasoline, diesels, and jet fuels made essentially from biomass, so it's renewable, uh, those are essentially CO2 neutral. And if regulators were a little more open-minded, what you'll find is that there could be a huge market for those stocks and you're still CO2 neutral. And I think that over time, uh, people are going to find out that, well, we already know. I mean, there's no way you can continue air transportation if you want to go electric. Uh, no way you're going to be doing, you know, you could do railroads. It'd be pretty tough. You could do heavy duty trucks. That would be, I mean, you're adding more weight and battery that, than it's worth, uh, you know, to, to do that. But that's a prime area where you need a higher density fuel and a battery is just nowhere close to uh, liquid fuels for energy density. And um, I mean, it's orders of magnitude different. So, so I wish the regulators would just look at um, what is technically needed is to reduce CO2. It's not technically needed to have battery electric vehicles, although that's a great way to reduce CO2 if your electricity is produced cleanly. Yeah, yeah, d definitely interesting. And, and, you know, I think it's relatively obvious for, especially for air transport and, and probably the marine sector as well, that they're not going to get away from liquid fuels, you know, anytime soon. And I think in some ways the EU regulation seems to have recognized that they might have overstepped a little bit, right? Where they, at first the decree was everything must go battery electric. And now they've kind of stepped back and said, well, you know, if if the if the solution be is hydrogen combustion or if it's you know if it's e-fuels you know we're willing to look at that as well so hopefully there is some sense uh put to some of this stuff but i don't necessarily hold out hope but um uh jack uh, thanks so much for for coming on the podcast to to discuss some of the real basics of base oils i think it's enlightening for people on on my end of the business who who don't necessarily see all those decision points that go into cr the creation of the of the base oils and base stock categories and things like that so um it's it's really nice to hear from an expert uh who knows a lot about that field so so jack thank you so much okay well thanks for the invite brave and uh we'll maybe catch you uh at, at a future meeting or in some industry event so yeah, that sounds take good. care that sounds good.